Have you ever thought about how you want to die? Weird question, and one that today's podcast guest, Kirsten Johnson, asked me in the middle of our interview. This interview with documentarian, camera person, filmmaker, Kirsten Johnson, goes places that most interviews about movie making and filmmaking don't. But that's because of the movie she made, Dick Johnson is Dead, which is an incredible doc if you haven't seen it, available on Netflix. It is about her father and about her father dying and about death in ways that go beyond the expectations because it's specifically about preserving someone through cinema and what you can do with a memory or a person or a moment in time or an experience, how you can capture it. She asks me a lot about my own life and my own experiences with death and my own ideas about it, which is not something that I saw coming, but makes perfect sense because she's an incredible documentary filmmaker. And the lesson you might learn listening to her is what is the hallmark of a great documentary filmmaker? How do you become interested in the people around you in a way that leads you to great stories and also leads you to becoming a great leader or becoming a great director or becoming a great human being? All of these things and more in today's interview with Kristen Johnson. so much about your career that I want to talk about, but I have to start just talking about Dick Johnson is dead and what feels like a movie that is assaulting the idea of mortality almost, or attempting to create cinematic immortality. And I'm just fascinated by that on so many levels, uh, emotionally, but psychologically, <laughs> spiritually. Um, what uh, I know it's a deeply personal film. I guess I'm just curious, was that part of the, the Im- inspiration, this idea that you wanted to try to fight against the temporary nature of existence with cinema? <laughs> I mean, is oh, that what yeah. it is? Oh, yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, why not give it a try? Um, I mean, I think every one of us struggles with the concept of immortality throughout the course of our lives. And, you know, there's sort of this like wonderful thoughts of like you live on in the people you have loved. Right. Um, But I think as someone who loves cinema, it's this wild thing of getting to meet people who are already dead through cinema. And so that, you know, some of the people who have changed my life, you know, made life worth living were already dead <laughs> when I met them for the first time. Amazing, um, yeah. Right? I actually um, was reading in The Guardian this morning, um, there was this article about uh, an artist I had never heard of whose name is Maggie Hambling. Um, and she's just, you know, force of nature, but she was quoting Auden and she said, I just was looking at it so good, um, that basically art is um, the way, the the sort of the most possible way to break bread with the dead. Yeah, that's, uh, I'm, I'm so taken with this idea. It never occurred to me that it was a way to relate to people that were already gone. You just think of like, well, I'll get to know this filmmaker or I'll get to know this uh, performer or this subject of a doc. And that just is the, you know, they happen to be on caught on cinema and that's how I know them. You know, like you say, it never occurred to me that we could do that with the people in our lives. Um, I don't know that it occurred to anyone before you, (laughs) to be honest, but it's such a fascinating idea. Uh, I mean, I've lost people. You know, I think so many of us have lost ritual for many different reasons, right? You know, maybe we do or don't have religion in our lives. Certainly in the time of this pandemic, we cannot gather. You know, so many of us would say like being in a movie theater was our form of ritual. But 
this idea that we can co-create with the people we love some form of ritual or some way of having conversation. And the thing that's just trippy for me with (laughs) this project is that it has brought my mother back to me with such a force. And I'm talking, you know, sort of on every different level. You know, my mother died in 2007 of Alzheimer's. And, you know, to look at the way she sort of enters this movie, like, you know, the movie is doing one thing until you see the footage of my mother. And then you're like, whoa, this is on. You know, like, it's sort of like, it's just like the beast arising from the dead. Um, you really like a serious gut punch in that moment. But, you know, to like yesterday, I got an email from someone I knew in childhood who I haven't spoken to for 40 years. And they wrote me this whole long paragraph about an afternoon they spent with my mother. And wow. You know, and and that's happening to me like almost every day since I've made this film. So so that it's not just like an idea that the film is bringing my mother back to life and my father, like keeping him in life. It's actually happening. It's actually sort of remitting relationships that had fallen away. Yeah, I'm uh, kind of at a loss for words when I think about it. I think I've always thought and I think many people do, cinema is a bit of a time portal. Um, you can experience another time in, in its all its fullness. Um, you can experience other ideas and other people, but I've never thought of it as it relates to mortality, at least the mortality of people who aren't cinema legends. Do you, yeah. you, you know what I mean? Right, right. I made my father into a cinema legend. Right, right. <laughs> but you, you've etched him into cinema in this way. I mean, I had a I had a late grandfather who, you know, he was part of the great generation and he lived into his 90s. And, and people in the family kept talking, oh, we should record him, audio record or interviews. And I long for those things because we didn't do it. You know, nobody got around to it, but it never occurred to me that it was, it was more like for the idea was posterity, you know, oh, well, yeah. he did such and such in World War II and he saw such and such. But the experience, seeing that your film reminded me that, that there's so much more that is possible in capturing the essence, not just recording, well, this is what my father was like, or this is, I'm you know. I'm so not, glad. I'm so glad. And you know, what's, what's like, one of the thing, I mean, so like, I think you bring up such interesting um, language for posterity, right? Like sort of who is that for? Mm. Um, and this notion that it's too late. We didn't record my grandmother, my grandfather, and now it's too late. Mm. But in fact, there are some people alive who knew your grandfather. There are photos of your grandfather you have never seen. Like there is a way for you in this present moment to find things out about your grandfather you didn't know. And you don't know what the nature of those things will be. His death meant the end to the imagining of how he might come back to life. Hmm. And yet, like he's here in this conversation, right? What's his name? Jack. Jack. And like when you think of Jack, what age do you think of him at? The end, the 90s, his 90s. His 90s. He made it into his 90s. So he was the 20th century. Yes. I always used to say he saw Charlie Chaplin movies in the theaters, but his favorite movie ever was Pulp Fiction. He spanned the... I mean, for me as a cinema fan, it always felt like this man lived the 20th century in cinema. Like, well, it's crazy to me. <laughs> well, and talk about uncanny, you know, Pulp Fiction and John Travolta coming back to life is part of the inspiration <laughs> for me, you know, for us bringing my mother back to life in camera person for making this film in which we resurrect my father, right? Like, so these wow, things, yeah. you know, so time loops around. So like your father, your grandfather had a sense of humor. Jack had a sense of humor, yes. right? And so where is it located? You know, what did he read? Who are the people who remember it? You know, and and just like the thought that you could get off of this conversation and send an email or call someone who knew Jack and ask them yeah. something that you don't know about Jack. And like, that's the thing for me that's so exciting about how alive this process is, because 
you and I and Jack share a love of cinema. We encountered right. movies at different points in our lives, but we we have a language that comes from it, right? And and we have exactly what you're talking about, this sort of experience of like stepping into the portal. Um, but what I think about that's so exciting to me, having made this film, is like, I don't know how time functions, right? Like, I don't know where this conversation takes us. I don't know where Jack will lead us, <laughs> right? Yeah. And right. that's so exciting. Like you may get off this, you know, conversation, make that call and then call me back and say, Jack led me to this, right. <laughs> Which will then lead me somewhere else. And, and like that possibility was such an animating force with this um, movie, but on a certain level, what we all have to struggle with is sort of like, why didn't we do it sooner? Mm. What, what prevented you all from recording Jack? And part of my thing is that, you know, we, a camera brings the future into the room and it also brings death into the room. So that to film a person in their 90s or to record a person in their 90s is to be explicit about yeah. their impending death. And you really embraced that with your father, that notion, obviously. <laughs> but oh, in the yeah. film, like, it was and, very and, much. You know, it's like how much more fun to fully embrace it and be like, we're going to die. Like, actually, we're going to kill you today. <laughs> You're going to die Anytime, today. Yeah. <laughs> um, th th then you can sort of, la then that, that sort of incredibly intense, high stakes, I'm afraid to have this conversation because I'm afraid one of us is going to cry. You know, all of that fear and shame that prevents us from making things with each other, from asking each other questions or having conversations. And, you know, I'm not saying any of this is easy. Like, right. you know, we have eight-year-old kids and it's just like, you know, w at what moment do you tell them about the terrible things of the world? Like, you're sort of constantly in this position of like, ooh, do I really want to talk about that? Mm. Yeah. You know, and they also don't want to hear certain things. Um, yeah, or they hear know. a version of it. I know having done it with my own kids, they hear their own version or interpret it their own way. I, mm -hmm. I'll never, yeah, I, you're, I can tell. So part of what you're an amazing filmmaker and it's, it's apparent in this conversation because you almost at, in a way you turn the, the lens that I'm doing the interview, but you turn the lens at me. And suddenly I felt like you were, you, you started creating a narrative. The great idea of a documentarian to me is somebody who can follow the story and understand that where they point the camera, things change, but then see what happens and then explore it. And it's like, I'm watching you do that in real time. It's amazing. Ah, well, well, thank you for seeing me and I am seeing you. And, and that's what I feel like is, you know, this work that we do, right? It's like, it's these relationships and relationships are back and forths. Like, and by learning about Jack, I have like, I can go to new places about why cinema matters to you. Hmm, like, yeah. Right. And I think, that, you know, the fact I see this red button going and 12 minutes have passed. <laughs> right. It's right. like, OK, time is of essence. So, like, let's go there. Why not go there? Um, as opposed to pretending that you don't exist and you don't have a past that you bring to this conversation. I don't have a past that I bring to this conversation. You know, I'm thinking about. Jack made me think about my grandfather, Elmer Johnson, who's my dad's father. And, you know, he was serving in the military in San Francisco in 1918. And I was just listening to a podcast about the Spanish influenza. And, wow, how, yeah. and how basically like that, it was called the Spanish influenza because no countries that were battling in World War I wanted to admit that their soldiers were getting sick. And Spain huh, was the only one who would admit it. And so this sort of thing about how things get covered up uh, and not spoken about and denied, that for me has, is like part of the project that I'm involved in. And it's like, yeah. that says like, see the other person, be a documentarian, like change the perspective, acknowledge that we collectively make things together. We make them in moments in history. And that, also, there's like sort of collective efforts to hide things. Isn't it fascinating how quickly we think we matter so much, and we do in the context of our moments and our people around us, but it's so fast that things become obscured and hidden and facts become warped and distorted. And I had no idea 
I had no idea that that was the truth behind Sp- why it's called Spanish influenza. But right. because it's called that, I just walked around this earth assuming it had it was a hundred percent associated with Spain and Spanishness, <laughs> which is incorrect. And, and it's and, shocking how yeah. it doesn't take that long for that kind of mythology to grow, <clears throat> which changes everything. It changes everything. It changes everything. That's and right. Your role as a filmmaker, again, it's that pointing the camera or being journalistic, which got, we should certainly need more of. But it's like saying, well, what is it really? And then saying for all of us, like, see, like, this is what it really is. Illuminate something for us. Yeah. And, and I think Arthur Miller said, like, the job of artists is to re- reveal what has been hidden. Hmm. And, um, you know, I think that can be like, you know, sort of terrible things, corruption and abuse and violence and racism. And you've done that. <laughs> and also it can be like sort of weird, uncanny, like miraculous, strange connections. So for example, in the making of this film, um, you know, my father went to visit Lolita Hurst, who was an old crush of his. Um, and when we, fi- after we filmed it, you know, we said, I said to hit her children, like, can you send me a picture of Bud, who was her husband? And with the children, without knowing anything about the storyline in the movie that my father was born with no toes, what do they send me? But a picture of Bud, who's a, you know, like it was a well-respected doctor sitting at his desk with his bare feet up on his desk. And Hmm. I pulled that photo out of the envelope and like started laughing hysterically. Like, how is that (laughs) possible? How is that possible? It's not like everybody sends you pictures of their father in their bare feet. Like, you know, and, and, and it's just magical. So there's like magical connections that are hidden. And, yeah. and that's sort of what I love. It's like that Jack loved Pulp Fiction. Yeah. And I'm connected to Jack through that. Like, how fun is that? And, and so the, the sort of delight and the humor and the absurdity is also hidden to us when we try to be so literal and explaining and serious about everything. Right. I think you mentioned earlier, you don't, you said quickly, you don't understand the nature of time. We have a false sense of security that time is works a certain way, that we can manage it a certain way, and that outcomes are somewhat predictable. And it's all predicated on nothing because anything can happen and we don't understand truly how time works or what our connections are to the past. And and to me, things like uh, a film like this or ruminating on people from the past or dreams about them, they feel as alive in a way that as they ever did in a thought or in what is essentially a a flashback. You made a movie that feels kind of like a time portal or, or it's like freezing something in time, Mm. even in the short time since you've made it. How does it feel? Does it feel like it captured things about your children at that age? Does it feel like, you know, I mean, how, how does it feel as a human being to have oh, made it well, just it's, it, it's very alive and it's, I mean, it's, in some ways it's like more, uh, like more powerful than I even can understand right now. You know, there was a double feature drive-in that Rooftop Films um, hosted in Queens in the fall and they showed um, Dick Johnson is dead back to back with camera person. And of course, like my kids FaceTimed me while I was in the car and they're like eight years old FaceTiming me while I'm watching them on screen at two years old. And it was, kind of, <laughs> it was kind of too much for me. I was like, Whoa. Cause, because I realized the humor that is built into Dick Johnson, like protects against some of the trauma and pain that is in camera person. And so I was like, I was kind of like rolling with Dick Johnson. And then I slammed into camera person, like, like slamming into a brick wall. (laughs) And I was just like, Oh my God, like all of like all of this is my life. Like what? And sort of being transported to it, you know, going through the portals was such a powerful mashup for me that it kind of, you know, stopped me in my tracks I don't think we can freeze time. Like I think cinema like allows time to be as fluid as it is. Um, mm. And and we built this into the process of making Dick Johnson where we, you know, the edit room is a place where you can move time around on the timeline. Yeah. But yes. <laughs> the idea that we could like, 
move time around on the timeline, create a scene, and then imagine something that they could cut into that. And then once that cut into that, then that would give us a new idea of how to change the timeline. So we were just like constantly sort of stirring the experienced and the imagined against each other. But of course, you know, all these things are unimaginable. Like who a person becomes as dementia creeps into them. It creates a self that was unimaginable to everyone who knew the self that preexisted the dementia. That's a whole other layer of this that also fascinates me because, you know, taking Jack, for example, my grandfather, I feel like the version I know is only one piece of of the whole person. You know, you are a certain person you find out when you have children or or really at any point in life, but you are a certain person to to those who come after you. You are a certain person to those who come before you in the family line. You don't always show all the sides, right? You That's and right. or you try not to, or maybe you think you don't, but you do, or maybe so many facets to how we appear and who's interpreting us. Um, that that also I have this lingering question are we always the same person really <laughs> you know like are we are, aren't we constantly changing and and in your film he is undergoing a, a, a change that's traumatic to all in in his in in experiencing dementia but i wonder you know sometimes you feel like you could wake up in the day and it's like am i a new person did i just reboot and i just loaded up these memories and now i function you know like like what is the how much do we change our cells turn over like we look back at prior actions and we think who is that guy or girl who yeah, did that yeah yeah well i just had a, such a like hilarious discussion with deepak chopra about this and you know he believes wow. death doesn't exist but he believes that we are sort of dying in every moment and he meditates on death daily. And, you know, the question is, what is a self, right? Yeah. And the ways in which we are transformed through time, both our bodies are transformed, but sort of our brains are transformed. The trippy things of learning, you know, when you are pregnant, the cells from your fetus make their way into your brain. And you, <laughs> you like, I am now them, Right. Wow. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So, I mean, I think, you know, we're sort of out the, at the edges of what um, science tries to understand consciousness time with cinema. Like we sort of have, we're like, we get to play in the toolbox of all those things. Right. It, it, we, we, it's, it's made of these pieces, right. It's made of the pieces that allow uh, consciousness, right. It's like, images, sounds, and we experience them in a durational way when watching a movie and we feel things, which is sort of what consciousness is, right? Yeah. And we, so, 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 I mean, that was what was so fun with this. Like, I mean, I can call it a movie and it's definitely a movie, but it was, it's truly like an experiment. Like, can yeah. we keep him alive forever? Can we rebuild him? Can the dementia, like, pull him apart and we can put him back together again? Can we capture his essence? All of those are, like, those are very open questions for me. But obviously, like, I named it Dick Johnson is Dead, and that is false right now. But right. someday it will be true. Yes. Is that why you named it that? Yeah. I mean, and, you know, my dad was so cute. I, like, woke up in a cold sweat when I realized that's what I wanted to name the movie. And I was like, I can't do that to my dad. (laughs) And I went in and I asked him. And he's like, oh, no, it's great. Because then I'll have reaction formation and I'll stay alive forever. (laughs) And that's a demented man speaking. Like, that's what's so cool about this whole project is, like, to be able to have the most profound conversations with my dad, despite his dementia. So, you know, right now he's in a dementia care facility near my brother in Bethesda. And I talked to him yesterday and he's like, so I'm going to start out walking towards you tonight. And I was like, ah, dad, I don't know. It's like cold outside. It's nighttime. He's like, yeah, but I just want to get one step closer to you. And, you know, like he says these things to me and I'm just like gutted, but how, but like, how like, Gorgeous and terrible is that, that he's, yeah. you know, seven hours away from me in this dementia care facility. And he's like scheming about how he's just going to start walking towards me. He doesn't know where I am. I wonder if there's some 
way in which the brain's rewiring to speak an emotional state, not just a like beyond a logical state. I mean, it's mm-hmm. all very interesting mm-hmm. and unknown. I there's something about what you've done and and what you do, particularly like with this film, but the way you talk about it is you said it was hard at one point. You said it's not easy. It's not easy to approach these things with one's parent dealing with the things they're dealing with. I guess it does depend to some extent on the relationship, you know, and you two are close or you felt comfortable or at least a little comfortable doing this, but also within yourself, I mean, bearing your soul and your frailty and your emotions and your humanity, we often talk about, you know, we we talk to young filmmakers or we hope to help young filmmakers figure out how they tell stories that, that will resonate, write movies that will get made, et cetera. And it always comes down to this idea of personalness and, and voice. How do you access it? Is it something mm. you've always been able to do to be bold enough? I mean, you're doing it at a level that I don't think many are bold enough to do. I'm not, certainly. How do you get to the place where you're like, I'm just going <laughs> to... Kill my father. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, Um, that, but it's like there's so much you're putting on the screen that's so human, you know? Yeah, you know, I mean, can I tell you, it has absolutely been a long struggle. And, you know, I think, but a joyful struggle, too, um, full of pleasure and a passionate, like, quest. But I, you know, lots of people say Camera Person is the first film I made which is not true. But I think why people say that in some ways is because it's the first film in which I'm truly speaking with my own voice. Um, No one but me could have made these films, right? And, you know, I made films about mass incarceration, about racism within the criminal justice system. I made crazy uh, science fiction film about a pandemic (laughs) in 1997. All of those were attempts to make films and to find my voice, but I was, I was afraid while making them. I was pretending to know things. I was struggling and trying, and it's a process. It's such a process, which is sort of obvious thing to say. For young filmmakers, just to like question, what do you need? What do you need from this film? And in my case, like, I need my father to stay alive forever. <laughs> I need to make something that that uh, allows me to never forget him. Because I have forgotten my mother. The Alzheimer's was so brutal that it wiped out my capacity to remember how she was before it. I see. Right? So it's, that's the way in which this is part of the linear, this is part of that experience. That's right. And, and the need is so clear for me. Like, I mean, I was ashamed to be making this film in 2016. The current president had just been elected. There was so much social justice need in the world. And also I had worked for, you know, 25 years on social justice films. And I, I was ashamed to say, I'm going to make a film just about my own father. Like nice old white American man, like who needs that, <laughs> right? Um, I mean, that's, but here's the crazy thing, like, and where we don't have the ability to predict, uh, it did become amazingly in step with our time somehow. Right, like, yeah, I saw the pandemic coming and that's why I decided to make this movie, not. <laughs> <laughs> in, in 2016, when you started this particular journey, it maybe felt out of step with what was happening in the world. But by the time it's released, oddly enough, is very in step with an experience, particularly dealing with saying goodbye. And it's all I could think of, not just my own personal goodbyes that have happened in the last few years, but that I think about all the time right now, how many people every day in this country are saying goodbye without being able to say goodbye uh, physically. Thousands of people. Right. It's, it's, It's astounding. It's beyond what I can comprehend. Like, and, and you made this film that's this beautiful way of handling and or trying to handle that. Um, so crazily, the timing is right. So maybe there's a, the, the lesson is just follow that path, you know? We don't control the moment in history into which we are born. We don't control whose family we were born into. We don't control uh, what will be the landscape when our films emerge. So why are we trying right. so hard to control our movies? That was like... For me, the most 
joyful discovery in making this film came when we were working on the um, heaven and hell sequences. And through the process of getting to them, knowing that my father um, was advanced enough in his dementia that he was completely unpredictable. I then, with the help of Maureen Ryan, who's the incredible producer and who is a very like organized, future-oriented, um, yeah. deal with the details person because she respects the craft and because she respects craftspeople. So somehow together from those two like edges, like me saying like, we won't be able to know anything and her saying, listen, we need to know many things in order for us to be respectful of the crew. Yeah. Right. Somehow <laughs> right. we came up with this process back and forth between us. And it was really like, you know, it was really fun. And we had we had blown it a couple of times earlier in the filmmaking of like me like missing her deadlines or me like not understanding what she was asking me. But this time we like got it to this sweet spot where I would be like, tell me the last possible moment when I need to choose a choreographer. Tell me the last possible moment when I need to tell you how many SAG actors there are going to be in this. Tell me the last possible moment. Do we decide, are we shooting heaven outside or inside? And I met all those deadlines. So somehow miraculously there we had 60 people all understanding that my father might do anything at any moment. (laughs) And yet it was lit. We had all of the, you know, fluffy clouds were there and the halos were there. And, you know, down to the focus puller, didn't know what my father was going to do. So we had this whole elaborate set and it could have all been out of focus. But we were at the place where it was like, it's okay if it's all out of focus. It might be beautiful if it's all out of focus. It was so cool because it was like doing a documentary. It's like, here's the world. And all I'm, and, and like, you're just sort of like trying to figure out what do I film? Uh, it was yeah. so fun. It was so fun. <laughs> I mean, you've shot, you've been, you have a prolific career shooting docs. Um, and you've been all around the world doing it as your films have shown. How did, did you had to communicate that spirit, I suppose, to a crew that was not necessarily like you see, you mentioned a focus puller, which is such a specific task. How did you imbue everybody with that, um, spirit? Like we're going to capture a moment, whatever it is. What a wonderful question. Okay. So one, basically I spoke to everyone (laughs) and I asked them questions. Um, I asked them how they wish to die. So, George, how do you wow. wish to die? Uh, wow. I've not, I haven't thought about that before. I guess I wish to die very old, um, peacefully uh, in my sleep, not sick at home with plenty of people I love still around. Is that how Jack died? Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. That's so, I'm so happy for him. (laughs) (laughs) I was too. It was a tough loss, but he, I don't think he was happy at the time, but I think he was not generally a happy guy, but I, (laughs) but I think that he was, he was ready in a lot of ways. He'd lost his wife and, that sent him health wise into a spiral. And I think that, you know, he was still pretty healthy. He was at home, he was in his sleep and he wasn't very sick. And there were a lot of people in his family who loved him and were around. So. Yeah. That's a good way to go. So the next question, like for you in your life is like, could you die happy? Like that would be like, maybe like, could you add to that, to the wish? Right. Because. Yes. Right. Like that's such an interesting Yes. That's what I would do with crew people. Yeah. Just amazing how many people have a connection to someone with dementia or have someone that they've lost or someone they're worrying about losing. So like having those conversations and then just like just seeing people because, you know, I've worked as a crew person long enough to understand some directors are so consumed by their own anxieties, their own fear about not being able to control everything that they don't, they literally don't see you 
Or for yeah. example, they're so consumed with their excitement about filming, they forget that they need to eat and they forget that the crew needs to eat. Yeah. They forget that the crew are bodies. <laughs> it's amazing that you go out of your way. Your answer to my question is I try to humanize every single person there, right? And that in and I find out who they are on the deepest level I can. They are humans. <laughs> I don't have to I don't have to give anyone a voice. They have voices, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's so telling that that's the way I see it. Is like you make an effort to turn these people into human beings. Yeah, but but I mean that's why we are. But on a set, you don't feel humanized often, right? That's you're, right. You're a cop. You're gear. In some ways, you have to do so little. <laughs> like people have been so mistreated. Yes. So unseen, so taken for granted that simply the act of seeing them, people are appreciative of the act of being seen. And, and, and to a point that like, you know, like I oversaw, like, you know, and I, you know, to give credit where credit is due, like JP, the uh, cinematographer who did the lighting for the heaven stuff, at a certain point he said, KJ, I don't think you realize how complicated this is for, you know, Chris to be doing the focus pulling, like given the focal length, given what your dad's doing, given that it's slow motion. And I was like, you're right. Like I had only triangulated my dad not moving where he's supposed to, but I forgot to triangulate the slow-mo plus, you know, the F-stop. And I'm like, he he can't get it in focus. And JP right. was like, but he is. And then, and then, and you know, but, but it's fleeting. Right. And I was like, well, that's perfect for dementia. But then I started doing this thing of like, I, you know, I started like cheering Chris after he'd get a shot. And then Chris, like at a certain point, he was just like, please don't like, don't, please don't put, put so much attention to me. Like I, I can't focus, you know? <laughs> and yeah. so some people are in roles um, yeah. they're more comfortable. Like a sound person is often, you know, sort of notoriously a silent person. Hmm. But I always love, you know, when I'm a DP on a shoot to say to the director, like in an interview session, um, you know, would it be okay if I ask a question at the end of your interview? And then they might say, yeah. And I said, and you might want to ask the sound person also. And sort of like invariably at the end of like a, you know, four hour interview, it'll be the sound person at the very, very end that asks the killer question. (laughs) but but many directors will forget the sound person is even there that's amazing or even listening right it is the person who's tasked with listening most intently that we ask nothing of you know it's like my frustration around like the ways we don't see people is part of what led me to this like thinking about stunt people and they risk their lives to be invisible in a movie in which another person who is the known actor like get seen, right? It's like the most, but you know, my father took it to another level when my kilo comes into his office and my dad immediately saw like, are there, you know, a lot of stunt people who are suicidal? Like wow. I, I had never taken it to that level. I was like, go dad. You know, yeah. like, <laughs> there's a wish. There's a little bit of a wish there or of, uh, yeah, there's yeah. something. Yeah, but there's but something. you know, like, so that's, so like seeing what is unseen in other people. That's also the great job of a doc, of a great documentary filmmaker, though, is like I is identifying and looking behind, seeing a human being and seeing a story and seeing a, a, a mo- many stories. I, I think that that idea of turning a film set into a place where I'm so happy I stumbled into that because I did not expect to ask a question that would lead us to talking about that, but. Because I was just thinking, well, how do you help them make, you know, what is a narrative moment when it's or a documentary slash narrative experience happening? But uh, to talk about how crews become invisible and just a piece of a machine, I I was sort of astounded. Just in the news, there was, you know, this release of Tom Cruise berating a crew. Someone didn't wear a mask, which I am very sensitive to the idea of it's important to wear masks. But the rant made me so uncomfortable and angry because yeah. I was so triggered because I don't think it's okay to talk to people like that. <laughs> like, I don't think it's okay to treat a crew that way. Like, and it, it makes me uncomfortable that it's ego, it's a self-aggrandize, but it's also like, it's, it's, you're just making a movie. Like, and I think that there's a way to, you know, I, I, it was just you talking about seeing those people. I just think that 
that came from a place of them not being people, not seeing them at all, really. Yeah, well, I mean, it's I've experienced it as a crew member, and I I'm interested in it, like as a human, you know, we we project so much onto other people. We think we're seeing them, but in fact, you know, sort of what people are revealing to us of what is inside of them is quite elusive. Um, and, you know, so I can look into someone's eyes and imagine I'm seeing lots of things, but often I, you know, have no idea what's going on inside there. And, 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 you know, and that's the primary relationship to my father, you know, like he is one of the humans on this planet I know the best, um, but I have no idea what's going on inside of his mind at all anymore with the dementia. And did I ever have any idea what's going on inside of his mind, right? And so the sort of whatever, like the mystery and the fun of that, of trying to look and see that, um, I guess to go back to your um, earlier question about like, how do you how do you expose yourself in cinema? The thing you say, like, I'm glad I stumbled, right? You stumbled <laughs> onto it. It would, and and I and I think that's where, like, I have become glad for all of my mistakes, misspoken moments, um, the ways in which I uh, fail uh, while filming, and I think that that like. Can we simultaneously say like words matter um, and then also be gentle about making mistakes about them? So like, how is it that we've spent, you know, 200 years saying the word slave when we should have been saying people who are enslaved, right? Mm. And, and, right. It's like, and, and it's like these shifts of language make you realize like how language is doing the action, it is turning people into slaves, literally, as opposed to saying people were enslaved by other people who did that to them, right? And, you know, that was camera person for me. It's like, what do I call this movie? You know, um, well, every day, you know, it's like it started with a funny thing. Like any day I'm out in the streets with a camera, someone will call me a cameraman. And <laughs> it's like, you're looking at me. And, and it's like hilarious now. Like I have still people who call camera person cameraman. Yeah. And you're just like, wow, really? <laughs> yeah. And, and, yet, and yet that's like we're taught blindness. So we can only sort of like bumble our way into, you know, like bumble and communicate back and forth to getting at like, what is this complexity of being human in each of us? Like, you know, what are ourselves? What is death? What is time? We got to bumble into it because <laughs> it's not, there's yeah. no straightforward path in. I I think the greatest wisdom, at least I, I believe the greatest wisdom is the accepting the more mystery than knowledge of the universe and the world. It's just like, you don't know what, like you say, you don't know what's going on behind his eyes now. And maybe you never did. It just opens up so much. It makes the world, it feels closer to truth to me <laughs> to embrace that unknown. Um, I, I have really enjoyed this. It's been amazing, maybe even enlightening, <laughs> but I want to, I want to make sure that before we end, I wrap up asking you, you know, you've talked about this. The movie is an experiment. Is the experiment done? And what are, the, if, if you're a scientist and this was an experiment, what are like, what are the results? Like, how do you measure what it's been? You know, so many times we talk about a movie. This is a total ongoing experiment. Like, you know, what does it mean to my relationship with my own children? What does it mean to to what cinema is and the relationships that we have as audience members uh, in this moment in time where we're all engaged with questioning our own futures? We're all like grappling with anticipatory grief. We're all in denial about what's happening to ourselves in this moment. Like, I have no idea. We are in the middle of this experiment and I don't know how long this experiment is going to go on. You know, um, I don't know who's going to see this movie in the future. I don't know if I'm going to die before my father does. I don't know if my children are going to kill me someday. <laughs> <laughs> only in a movie. <laughs> yeah. um, but 
But but that's so fun to me. It's so fun. And I mean, you know, people say these things like an audience is continuing to make the movie with me. I really believe that. Like your the way you have looked at the film allows you to ask me questions that then push me to think in new ways. And mm. I push you to go bring Jack back to life, right? And right. I, I ask you to die happy, um, you know. Yeah. And I re-question, like, what would it mean? What, what, what? How if I were to die? Like, how? What would that mean? What? How could I die happy? What would that be look like? Um, yeah. So all of that's happening. It just yeah. happened in the last forty-six minutes. Which is which is insane. <laughs> I mean, you 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 know, in filmmaking, in the world of creating movies, television, docs, everything, everybody always comes back to these ideas like story matters or character matters. And I always want to say why or explain more, like tell me more about why it matters. It always is the primary thing. But I feel like in a way, again, to say stumbled, I feel like you've sort of hit on it. It matters because it's how we make meaning of our world is through narrative. Like it's how we construct the universe (laughs) and the events and the experiment being ongoing, like you say, is sort of like, well, I started telling this story this way, but the story is not like it. it's an unfolding story. It may have a new chapter added when certain events that we can't predict take place and then alter how people view this film, right? Or maybe somebody, like you say, changes how they decide to make a film because you approached telling a human story this way. Maybe it, it, there's so many places it can go. That's you also mentioned like in the editing room, you guys would chop it up and, and recreate a timeline. You create meaning in there. That's such a crazy idea. You create meaning out of an actual life, right? Oh, yes. And, <laughs> and oh, yes. You know, like, oh, yes. And and we can say like, okay, we decided like, you know, I originally said I'm going to make this movie until my dad really dies for real. And I didn't do that. I stopped. Uh, yeah. But... I may not be done, <laughs> you know, like, and right. that's, and that's the decision that I have ahead of me, right? What do I make next? What needs to be made next? And, um, you know, sort of the, the, there are many things that are spectacular about youth, um, many, <laughs> but, but what is sort of spectacular about aging is, uh, like the narrative threads that knit together are just like, mm. and the ways you can look back at them and look anew at them. And so, you know, this whole experience of putting the film out into the world has just been like a, this is your life. Like I was saying before, like I'm just having right. people come from the woodwork, people from elementary school, college, you know, Senegal, where I was when I was at 21. And I am getting to see visions of who I was, but it's like, oh, I lost that relationship with that person. I haven't talked to that person in 30 years. Do I want to keep talking to that person? <laughs> what, what, what? And, you know, whatever. I think this happened on a, like, you know, world scale with Facebook, for example, right? Right. There are mechanisms that sort of bring our lives in and out of time like this. And then what do we do with that? Because we're all deciding, like, how does our life have meaning you know, how do I spend my time? Who do I spend it with? And I think the pandemic is also just like this, like acute slow pot cr- pressure cooker of a reevaluation of what are my priorities? What is the meaning I care the most about? You know, and so it, it's like we're, it's like the process of making a film. It's like, okay, what do I got here? Um, I'm going to examine it or I'm going to avoid examining it. I mean, I think this is this is a really spectacular historical moment to be alive in, um, and it's and it's not unlike the process of making a movie where it's like you don't know when it's going to end, and you feel like you're failing, and you feel the anxiety and loss of it. Um, but there's also like sort of a giddy exhilaration of the unknown parts of it, um, and also it's just out of your control. It's exciting to talk to you because you make it sound like whatever the future is, there's so much we there's so much possibility. I think that the pandemic has also served to make people feel locked in literally, but also like locked in place, like we're stuck. We're stuck here. Yeah. You've yeah. presented it as like a what an amazing time to witness, to be alive. Yeah. And what comes next and what are we gonna do with it? Yeah. This is giving us radical perspective on what matters to us. 
Um, and, and all of the things that, you know, things that have been impossible have shifted. So what, what, what can that allow us to reimagine? Yeah. I mean, obviously at no film school, our community is extremely interested in cinematography, which is, you know, you're, you'll be, you're a natural fit for the world of our audience, but also what gear people use to shoot on and why Um, you've probably shot on all kinds of cameras. (laughs) Like I can't, I imagine your list of being a camera person, as long as you've been, um, you know, what leads you to choose what you choose, but also on this particular project, why did you make the choice you did? So, you know, the question is often asked, what camera did you shoot this on? Right. And as if the camera itself creates the film. And I want people to remember you're in history. And so when I came into the history of filmmaking, unfortunately, <laughs> I arrived just as shooting documentaries was finishing on 16 millimeter. And we were starting to shoot on VHS formats with lenses integrated into cameras in standard definition. And I probably shot on the worst cameras in the history of cinema <laughs> for about 15 years. <laughs> And you know what's um, crazy though is people love that look now. Like that look has like this weird. That look, that look is a is a is history. That is being in history. So the technology that is available to you, and this can be, you know, the technology available to a person who has no funds and lives in a place where there's no gear to rent, that might be a cell phone. Right? the technology that is available to a wealthy person in a place where they can rent a phantom camera has a different technology available to them. So, so think about you have access to certain technologies because of where you are in history, because of your relationship to money, uh, because of your relationship to other people. And since none of us know what the future looks like, none of us can imagine like, oh, we look back at standard def and say like, oh, that's beautiful, right? But it, it, it's none of these technologies are beautiful in and of themselves. They are only in combination with a human eye. And that's about to change too, because AIs can, you know, artificial intelligence will be filming beautiful things yeah. in the future. Machine, you know, I think I question, like I'm searching for language, like, am I a cyborg? Well, at one point, you know, I was like, I shot all the time with a Panasonic um, DVX 100. And I I was that cyborg. And then for a while, I was a Canon C300, you know, and for years and years, I was a Canon C300. And then for the first time in my life, I was able to afford Canon cine lenses, and I could change lenses and have these just like beautiful, seeing the world through this beautiful glass instead of basically seeing it through plastic, right? And um, so I think of myself as sort of like intertwined with a historical moment, intertwined with the technology available to me in that moment because of many factors. And, and, and my relationship to how I can handle that technology. You know, I took the above, I shot on this teeny tiny HMU 100, like could fit in the, in the palm of my hand, like a camera so small, I couldn't even see the blimp that I was filming in the sky, but I wanted to be safe. I didn't want anyone to see that I had a camera. Yeah. So, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why people choose the cameras that they choose or cameras are sort of forced upon them by circumstances. But none of this limits us. It is only like, it's a part of the way that we fumble and stumble and fail our way into expressing who we are at a moment in history. So use any technology that is available to you, which allows you to express who you are in that moment and what you need in that moment. And I'm telling you, if you really go for it, people are going to look back and say, wow, that camera is incredible. What did you shoot that on? Such a good answer. I love that. It's like saying to an artist, like, look, maybe you don't have a brush. Maybe you can only scratch with a rock on the side of a wall. But 
you can still use that to tell. Turns out people thousands of years from now (laughs) will go into your cave and freak out. Yeah. Yeah. And say, isn't this beautiful? (laughs) That's right. That's right. So tell me about the Dick Johnson camera and the circumstances in history and time and monetarily. I was started, you know, so much of some footage from Dick Johnson comes from before I knew I was making Dick Johnson. Yes. So, right, so that's the footage of my mother when she had Alzheimer's, which I shot on a Panasonic, the DVX100, and then, which I shot, you know, in 4.3, right? I'm shooting in a square, not a rectangle. And that matters in the film. You see that that is the past, right? You see that that footage is different from the footage that comes after it. And then in that C300 period, um, you know, I filmed things with my father, like my father driving in his car across the bridge, you know, I filmed that not knowing that someday my father, it would be unsafe to put my father behind the wheel of his own car. Right. Um, and so it's like that footage, it, it, it looks different and it is different. It's already the past. Um, and then telling a story just by being different. Yes. And, and, and the things, and this happens all the time in documentary where you film something and you don't know it's going to disappear. You know, so many of us film the World Trade Center in the background of shots or we see it in the background of movies. And it's like we didn't know it would disappear. Mm. Right. And people, too. And now when I see that footage, I mean, I remember looking at that footage and thinking, oh, it looks terrible. You know, it doesn't look that good. And now when I see it, it's just like I could cry looking at it. It's so fun Uh. to see my father driving the things that we understand retrospectively about footage. And, you know, I think about like Kelly Reichert making Meek's cutoff and shooting it in that little square and changing our relationship to how we looked at the American West and from whose perspective we're seen. And so I think we use, we can sort of use cinema language to do these things. And when you look at the ambulance um, section of the film in which we were trying to think like, how can we punk the audience, right, into really thinking dad really died or really took that ambulance ride. Well, Kirsten Johnson is camera person. So, and she knows, she's, we know she knows she's making a movie, but like, would she really bring her, her, you know, Panasonic EVA with her into the ambulance when her father's having a heart attack? No, she wouldn't do that, but she would have her cell phone and then maybe she'd pull her cell phone out. And like, but then if the, you know, if something serious happened, she wouldn't care about filming anymore. She, you know, yeah. her phone would have dropped on the floor and it would stay there. And so we, we thought about all of that. We thought about the cinema language of all of that, not, not in terms of style or the look of it, but in terms of cinema language, what would Kirsten Johnson do in the future if her father was having a heart attack and an ambulance came and she was making a movie? Uh, it's amazing to think, yeah, you made the camera, the, the user of the camera, a character, a writer of the story, essentially. That's right. And then we created the real conditions. Like we like hired real EMT guys and they explained to us what would happen and what wouldn't happen. And I rode in the ambulance with my cell phone and dropped it on the floor. That is very cool. Yeah. Well, um, thank you so much again. It's like every question gets such a thorough and fascinating answer. <laughs> it's been really fun. I stumbled my way into everything, George. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it. Well, I'm so happy to meet uh, Jack today and i would love it if you would send me a picture of him i can do that yeah absolutely actually i can say yeah i can send you one when he was in world war ii he met mao he was stationed in china yeah that's sort of his thing that was his like his favorite thing about his what did he think about him I think he was like overwhelmed. <laughs> I think he was young, you know, he was 20. He did. But you know, it's funny. He, we didn't have the kind of relationship where I would ask him. And that's, you know, that goes into the story of like, I never asked him things like that. Like, what did you think of Mao? Like, I don't know what he would have answered. He probably would have shrugged. <laughs> but that's who he was, you know. It was like, I don't know, you know, but it's, that was his thing. So maybe I'll find that picture and send it to you. <laughs> I would love it. I would love to see Jack and Mao together. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This was definitely one of the most fun interviews I've done simply because it got into stuff that goes into the meaning of existence and how we handle and process the most challenging and central questions to our lives. If we're not doing stuff like that, what are we doing? Why are we making movies or telling stories? 
Um, we could do a lot of things to make money that are easier. We don't have to try <laughs> and make it in this industry. Certainly, it's not the easy choice. And if you're interested in things like fame or money, there are other things you could try. Making movies that answer the central questions of existence and telling stories that, that cover them and the way that Kirsten approaches life is fascinating and worthwhile. And uh, it was a joy to have her on this show. And thank all of you for listening. Uh, the No Film School podcast exists because you want it to. So don't forget to email us questions for our weekly podcast at ask at nofilmschool.com. If you want us to talk about things like we talked about on this episode, or if you want us to check into different kinds of guests or cover different kinds of topics, let us know. And if you have specific questions about how to do things, what gear you should buy, remember to let us know. I hope you're having a great 2021 as it has started, strange as it has been, and we'll hope to hear from you soon. 